Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Acts 10. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one in front of you. If you've got a smartphone, download the app, uh, version. All right. And uh, Acts chapter 10. And, and we're in a bit of a hurry this morning. All right. Uh, if, if, you are, if this is your first time with us, we as a church join with a great cloud of witnesses all over the earth, plus the many men and women of faith who have gone before us in celebrating Lent to prepare our heart and soul for Resurrection Sunday, for Easter Sunday. Uh, there's a little brochure about how we do that in the seat back in front of you. This is yours to take home. Uh, we are calling our church to pray fast and give. Uh, we we uh, fast on Tuesdays. If you're medically able, please join us in fasting on Tuesdays. Uh, also on Tuesdays, we have a time of prayer from 12 to 1 right in here. And I'm just going to tell you, I was blown away this past Tuesday by the number of you that showed up to pray. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but I walked through these doors and boom. I mean, there's just no program. It's just Jesus, all right? Just seeking the manifest presence of God. So 12 to 1, come and be here for that. And then we're calling our church for 40 days of generous giving. Um, and we do that at the end of the service. If you're new with us, we don't, do, we don't pass a plate. This is between you and the Lord. Uh, and, and you bring your, your tithes and offerings to the boxes all around the, the worship center or also take them to the giving kiosk. And if the giving kiosk is ever a little flaky on whether it works or not, that is not God's sign to you that you're not supposed to give generously that week. Um, you can always go into the Connect Center, and there's someone to help you there. So that is Lent. Um, one other thing that I, I told this kid I would do, there's a guy in our student ministry named Rusty Grimm. He turned 18 on Thursday. And Rusty Grimm, uh, he led all the people in his family to Christ, like his mom and his dad and his grandparents, his, all his aunts and uncles. I mean, it's like the whole tribe, uh, right? <clears throat> And so, uh, it's cool. I call him the Grim Reaper because he just comes after you. It's over. And um, so he goes on our Jamaican mission trips with our students. And, and so he wanted me to tell our students, if you, you need to sign up to go to either our mission trip to Jamaica or if you're in middle school to our mission trip to South Carolina, both of those areas of the world are in dire need of the gospel. And so uh, uh, if you want to sign up for that or if you're not a teenager but you have one at home, and you would like to sign them up, then we've got New Gen staff in the Connect Center at the end of the service. All right, Acts 10, we're in a hurry. We're already going to be late. Thursday, I preached for about an hour, and for the sake of the person in the uh, Burgundy uh, Malibu, we'll, we'll try to hurry, okay? <laughs> Acts chapter 10. By the way, if it was my Burgundy Malibu, I wouldn't get up either, right? I'd wait. When somebody's like, uh, someone with a BMW, I'd be like, I'm sorry, y'all. I got to go. It's my... But... All right, so last week, Dr. Van Gaten, didn't he do a phenomenal job talking about the gospel and the implications in our relationships? So really, he was talking about the gospel, but he was talking about the gospel from the cosmic view, all right? So he was talking about humanity and all of creation being redeemed. So he talked about creation and the fall and redemption and the consummation, all right? So that's like the gospel from the cosmic view. So uh, today, we're going we're gonna to shift down into the gospel from the personal view, the like eyeball to eyeball with your creator kind of view of the gospel. Both are true, uh, but it's like two sides of the same coin. So this morning, what we're going to talk about is regeneration and justification and sanctification and glorification. And I'll explain what all of those mean, but I just wanted you to know that, that I can use big words like the guy last week too, okay? So... <clears throat> 
That's where we are here. If you'll remember, we, we've been talking about Peter and Cornelius for several weeks during this series. And so Peter is, um, is a, a Jewish guy who is redeemed of the Lord. He's surrendered his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but he's still got some religious baggage. And he's got this divine appointment with this guy named Cornelius, who is, uh, um, he's doing some good things externally in his life, but he's a Gentile and he hasn't been forgiven of his sins yet. He, he doesn't know God personally yet. And so God puts them together, and that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts 10, verse 33. So I, this is Cornelius talking, so I, Cornelius, sent for you, Peter, at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. In other words, uh, all right, so Peter, why don't you share with us the good news, which, by the way, was Peter's greatest prayer request. Remember back in Acts chapter 4, he told the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, um, after they commanded him, you better quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And he said to them, you do whatever you choose to do, but I cannot help but speak of the things that I have seen and heard. And what he had seen and heard was Jesus crucified and resurrected. And so his greatest prayer request was, Lord, give me the opportunity to share the gospel with more people and more people. And what Peter's greatest prayer request was is many of our greatest fears. Some of you have been coming to church, and you've even surrendered your life to Christ, but deep down you're thinking, oh, dear God, please don't anybody ask me about it. I mean, when I'm at work, you know, we can talk about something easy like politics, but let's not talk about Jesus, all right? I'll even, we can even talk about God, that's okay, that's kind of non-offensive, but, ugh, but I don't know if I'm ready to share by faith to talk about the gospel and redemption and Jesus Christ. And listen, folks, the, the gospel commands us that we would share the good news of the grace of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying be weird, all right? If I bump into you on the way to the Jags game and you got a bullhorn and a placard, I'm gonna pretend like we've never met, all right? I'm just putting that out there. But look what Peter does. So after he gets this invitation, verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth. Christians, that we have been commanded to open our mouth. Yes, live right, but... There will come a time where you have to open your mouth and talk about Jesus stuff. Um, I disciple a group of young men, and, and these are these, this is like the cream of the crop, okay? Uh, uh, the guys that I disciple, I'm preparing them to be disciple leaders, and we meet, we meet every week for about a year now, maybe a little longer than a year, 6 a.m. It, it's, it's, it's like the cream of the crop, and this week we were going over this text, and so I look at my group, and say, all right, fellas, uh, when's the last time you opened your mouth and shared the gospel? And my guys are just sitting there going, um, ooh. Well, I mean, we go to church, and we go to Bible study, and we show up to all the events that you ask us to show up to, but, uh, and one guy goes, I think I did last semester with my roommate, to which I start going, uh-oh, because this is like the cream of the crop, okay? These guys are kind of the best of the best. They signed up for the pastor's Bible study. You got it? And so it would be like if I was a track coach and got together with the track team and said, all right, team, when's the last time you went running? And the track team went, oh, run, hmm. I don't, I think I ran last week. It may have been a brisk walk. I'm not sure. We would not be a very good track team, right? So we have been commanded to open our mouth. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, and here's what he said. He's going to talk about the gospel. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That's just a confession that, that his life has been redeemed uh, by God in terms of racial reconciliation, verse, verse 35. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now this, I've just, 
I just got to let you know, this is a setup verse. What, what Peter is going to do here to Cornelius is he's just going to set him up for the gospel. This is actually a diagnosis verse. He said, okay, Cornelius, here, here's where we'll start. First of all, um, a- anybody from any nation who, who does these two things is going to be acceptable unto God. Uh, anybody that fears God and does what's right is acceptable before God. Now, I've just got to tell you the punchline here. You know what the problem with that verse is? No one fears God and no one does what's right. So other than that, everybody's good to go, okay? And I know you already knew this because you study Greek in your free time like I do, but that word acceptable is not the legal term to be legally accepted before God, but it's a social term, meaning that, um, uh, that, that God does not show partiality based on nationality. You see, uh, what this is, is this is a setup verse because Cornelius is probably sitting there at first going, well, that's me. You know, I fear God. I believe in God. I've been going to the temple, and I do what's right. I, I give alms, and I, I say my prayers. And the, the scary thing about it is, if you were to ask the average person sitting in church today what it means to be a Christian, this is what they'd say. Well, I, I believe that there is a God, and I do good things. And they would begin to then list some of the good things. I went to VBS as a child. And I do not drink or, or cuss or chew, nor do I go with girls who do. And so, therefore, that's what it means. Well, the problem, according to the Bible, is number one, no one fears God. Now, I'm not just making this up. If you go, we're going to go all through the Bible just, to, just so that you can see that the common thread throughout from cover to cover in the Scriptures is that you cannot earn salvation before God. Romans chapter 3 says it this way, starting in verse 10, none is righteous. That word righteous, anytime it shows up in the New Testament, righteous means a right standing before God. None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then some of you are thinking, well, you ain't met my grandma. All right, now your grandma is one of these people too, okay? And then verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's what theologians call total depravity. Dr. Van Gaten uh, described it last week this way. Depravity means that we are very crooked. I've said it to you a thousand times that you and I are born by nature. We are wretched, black-hearted sinners. And any person that does not believe in total depravity has never raised a two-year-old. That's why God, by his common grace, lets our children hit the two-year-old phase, all right? And every parent just had a resounding amen deep in your soul. But you got a white preacher again, so y'all won't talk to me. All right, so, uh, so, right, can I get an amen from the parents that's raised a two-year-old? Did you teach your two-year-old to bite? No, your two-year-old hopefully never walked in your house and saw mommy biting daddy, right? They just earned it up. They learned it on their own. I mean, did, did she learn to hoard up her food and her candy and be selfish with that? Is that how you eat at the dinner table? I mean, do you get all the tacos? And they're like, uh-uh, no tacos for you. These are dad's tacos. But the day after Halloween, how do your two-year-olds act? They just get it all up. I don't, they're not enough for y'all, all right? And they didn't even earn that candy. That's not their candy. It's by my grace I even let them get some of that, all right? You'll share your candy. Now, now I'm not saying they're not cute. They are cute, wretched, black-hearted sinners. 
But that's just a condition of our soul. It's called total depravity. The truth is that you're not a bad person that needs to get better. You're a dead person that needs to come alive. And there's a difference there. It's why in your notes every week, on the front of your notes, we've got this quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Remember when your child first learned the word no and how they used it with such proficiency? You would ask them to do something, it's time to go to bed. No! And you thought, my angel. No, not an angel. Not an angel. Wretched. That's what that is. In need, again, cute, I know, adorable, buy the, buy the pictures. Get them, all right? But, but wretched at their core. Um, <clears throat> if you have a password for your computer, you believe in total depravity. If you put locks on your door, if, if your car has an alarm system, all of those things are because you know that people aren't just bad, they are downright evil in our core. And I know that's not a very popular message, right? Because everybody wants you to think you're a rainbow or you're a snowflake. No, you're really not. You're a wretched, black-hearted sinner. Now, <clears throat> so nobody on their own fears God or comes seeking after God. Um, and, and the reason that you feel like you are seeking God right now is what theologians call regeneration, that it's actually a loving, holy merciful God that reaches down into that black heart and begins to soften it and draw you unto himself. That's what's happening uh, even this morning. The, the other thing that's true is that even if we try to do what's right, um, it does not earn a right standing before God. Even if you don't uh, uh, smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do, even if you do all of those things and get them right and don't watch rated R movies and only listen to The Promise and show up to everything we ask you to show up to and all of those things, even if you were able to do all of those good things, it wouldn't earn you a right standing before God. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And... And I'm going to tell you, I don't care how good you think you are, your good deeds are JV compared to the Pharisees. And to which some of you go, oh, no, no, Pastor, uh, I'm pretty good. I have memorized many verses. Okay, well, did you know in order to become a Pharisee that you would have to memorize, memorize the entire Old Testament word for word? And let's just be honest, you've never even read Leviticus, Right? So uh, you started reading it, Genesis was cool, Exodus, that was groovy, and then you get to Leviticus, uh, and you think, eh, that's weird, all right, that's weird, uh, about what kind, of, what kind of clothes you can wear, and can you live ne- next to brackish water, and I mean, you, you think, I'm skipping that, I'm going, I need some blind guys getting healed, and you flip over to that side, all right? So <clears throat> they memorize the entire Old Testament word for word. And to which I'll always hear people say, well, you know, I can't memorize stuff like that. Well, that's a lie, too. You know how I know it? Because you still know every word to Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> and if I were to go ding, 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 you go, stop, collaborate and listen. Ice is back with the brain. I mean, you can do it, too, all right? So it's in there. You have the ability. And so compared to the righteousness of the Pharisee, I don't know where that stuff comes from, okay? I'm sure my <laughs> seminary professors would be pleased, but... <clears throat> And then, even, and then it even gets worse. If, if you were to even outdo uh, the Pharisees in your righteousness and get everything right, Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In fact, the reason that God gave the law, the Ten Commandments plus the other 600 plus commandments, was really just to expose our sinfulness. So that, because you've tried it before. I mean, let's be honest. Who has lied to you more than you? Who has broken promises to you more than you and your own promises? Right? I mean, we're in February now. It was just a month ago. You were promising New Year's resolution. <laughs> the gym attendance is right back to normal. All right? Praise God. All right? Get off my treadmill. So, now, <clears throat> there is this propensity in all of us to try to earn our righteousness. And, it, and it's rampant in, in the Protestant church, in, in all the churches, especially in the United States, where we try to do good things to earn a relationship with God. That we go to church and we go to Bible study and we do these things and try not to do the bad things. And we try to earn our relationship with God. There are, uh, there are two biblical metaphors that, that, that are given to us that describe how God feels about that act of trying to earn his approval. We can go New Testament first. In the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, uh, the apostle Paul he says, hey, you want to brag about being good? Check out this list. And he goes through his list of all of his accomplishments. I was a Pharisee, born, on the, born to, the, to the nation of Israel in the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, Pharisee of Pharisees. I, he memorized the whole Bible, all of those things. And then, and then at the end of that, he says, I consider all of those things rubbish. Rubbish. Now, the Greek word, I've taught you this before, the Greek word is skubilon. Say skubilon. Okay. You just said a cuss word in church, praise God, all right? <laughs> skubilon in Greek, it's, it's literally, the definition is slang for animal dung. Now, I don't know where you're from, but where I'm from, we don't call that rubbish. Where I'm from, we call that, first, first word is bull, and the second word is I'm not saying, okay? So, that's what Paul is saying. I've got this perfect list of how good I am, and compared uh, to, the, to, to knowing Jesus, I consider all those things bull scubilon. That's what that is. That's how God sees it. How impressed would you be if on Father's Day or Mother's Day, your kid said, hey, mom and dad, I've got a gift for you, and they, they give you this beautiful box wrapped up, and you unwrap it, and then there it is. There's animal dump from the yard, Okay. You would go, holy scubilon, get this out of the house. <laughs> that, that, no, no, you would not be impressed at all, you'd be offended. Now we can go Old Testament while we're, while we're down this offensive train. This is even more offensive. Husbands, you're gonna be with me on this one, okay? In Isaiah chapter 64, verse six, he says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. When we try to bring our righteousness to God, like, God, are you not impressed with me? I mean, check it out. I am at church, and it is the race weekend, okay, God? So you know I get extra credit for this. And some of you, that's why you're here. Actually, you're here this morning trying to get a credit to make up for a debit that you got last night. And you go, oh, I know, it'll be kind of a one-to-one. I know I did that, but I'm going to go to church, and it's going to be okay. And what God says is when you try to bring your righteous deeds to me to impress me, it's like your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They, they, they translate it in English this way because they know you got to read it in church. Literally, what this means is um, a, a used menstrual cloth. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Think about that. Let that just ruminate in the room for a minute. Is that a little offensive? Husbands, 
Imagine your wife going, baby, I got something for you. Okay, what is it? Here you go. And it was polluted garments. You go, ah, no, no. Is that not the grossest, gross, ever, 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 ever? Right? That our righteous deeds to impress God is like a dirty, I'm not saying it, all right? That's what it's like. That's how God sees it. So so there's a problem here, Houston, isn't there? Because Peter said, well, hey, no problem. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Well, uh uh-oh, no one fears him. No one does what's right. And even if we get it right, it's detestable to God if we're trying to earn his approval. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. The problem is that we're not bad people trying to be better. We're dead people. We're enemies of God, like C.S. Lewis says. We're rebels who need to lay down our arms. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm just walking you through these, through these places so you can see the consistent message of the gospel all throughout the Bible. Paul to the church at Ephesus says it this way. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, hey, Christian, don't you be looking down your nose at somebody else who's in their trespasses, trespasses right now. You didn't do anything to save you. You were the passive, passive agent in this transaction. That God came after you. You didn't do anything. Dead people can't do anything. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So by nature, we are sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. In other words, church... Why in the world would you expect an unsaved world to act saved? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Did you realize that we by nature are children of wrath? And again, nobody will tell you this now. And in fact, people will say, you should be offended that that pastor said that about you. Okay, rainbow, snowflake. That, that how dare he say anything against your beautifully unique, precious little face. All right. Well, the truth is, is that you and I, when we slap the face of an almighty and sovereign God, it has eternal consequences, and that God's wrath would be justified in being poured out upon us, like the rest of mankind. And then in verse 4, there's a but, and it's a big but, and praise God for the big buts in the Bible, all right, because if the message starts here, it takes the fun out of fundamentalism, doesn't it? Here we go. But God, being rich in mercy... So even when we're sinners, even when we slap the face of an almighty God, he's still rich in mercy because that's who he is. But God being rich in mercy because of of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You should breathe a big sigh of relief right there that it's not based on your performance It's based on Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. And that's the gospel. Not fear God and do what's right, but surrender your life to Jesus. Here, I'm going to explain it this way. One of the beautiful things about the gospel and about the church of 1122 is that the gospel brings people together who normally wouldn't be together. And I'm not just talking about that one guy who got married at church. I'm talking about, you know, on the baptism video. But there's a, there's a family that comes here on, on Thursday nights called the Putnells. And they typically sit right here, like, in the student section. And um, they come at 722, and they're all rednecks, all right? And so um, 
I mean, they are, but they're like the high-class rednecks. So they have like nice four-wheelers and nice four-by-fours and nice RVs, you know. But, but they're still redneck. I mean, you know, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. And, and, and you, you can only call a, a redneck a redneck if you are one, and I are one, all right? So I, I can say it. And so they're avid hunters, and I actually I hunt with them. And, um, and the way they came to Christ is really amazing. A, a, a really demented guy in Jacksonville did something evil to, to one of them, to the daughter, Putnell. And um, what, what he intended for evil, God used for his glory and drew the whole family to Christ. And so now they, they all got saved. And now my whole hunting club takes up about three rows right over there uh, at 722 on Thursday night. It's awesome. Um, and, and again, they were rednecks before, like, Duck Dynasty made it cool, okay? They, they're like, they're good. So the Putnells, they sit over there on Thursday night. And then the second row right here, you, if you're going to be a member of the Church of 1122, then you're going to need to know this man. His name is Lars Peter Peterson, but we call him Petey. When you're, when you're big time, you just get one nickname, like Madonna. Everybody, she doesn't need a last name, right? And so Petey is like that. You just say Petey, and everybody around here knows who Petey is. And so um, Petey is the chairman of the Board of Elders. And his story, he comes from a totally different world than the Putnells, um, uh, Petey was a, a high-end executive in these multi-million dollar department stores. That's where his world came from. So while the Putnells are making duck calls, uh, Petey knows the difference between like different kind of materials, you know, like, like what a woven is versus a, uh, that's really the only one I can remember, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of more from the Putnell clan, but... So Petey, about 10 years ago, was just sitting in church one day, it feels like the Lord puts a call on his life to step away from all of that exec world, and, and the word he got from God was go to church. Now, he was already going to church, but God didn't mean attend church. God meant take all your time, effort, and energy, and you're going to put it in the church. And so, in the last five years, the most influential man in my life has been Petey, all right? So, we spent a ton of time together. He's the chairman of the board of elders, and, and if it was not for God working through PD, there is no church of 1122. All right, now, I tell you all that because I want you to know that I honor, respect, and love him because it's going downhill from here. All right, so <clears throat> in PD walking away from corporate world and, and kind of getting linked up with me and all that, we hunt a lot together now. And PD, he's a new hunter, again, because he's been, you know, sitting on Mahogany Road, not in tree stands. And so he'd never been duck hunting. And so I introduced Petey, and the Putnells put them together and say, you know, y'all go duck hunting. So the Putnells take Petey duck hunting one day. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but you can duck hunt in the intercoastal right out here. The law says you only have to be 100 yards away from a residence, and you can hunt there. And so the Putnells measure it like to the foot, okay? So they're literally, they're kids outside playing on their swing set, and they're like, duck, boom, you know, and kids are like, what in the world? And that's just how they roll. All right, so they're all going to go hunting one day, duck hunting, right out here in the, like behind Queens Harbor, right there. And so Petey gets all dressed up in his duck waders and his camo, and he'd never been duck hunting before, and they head out into the John boat, but then they got to get out of the John boat and get into the marsh of the intercoastal, get like, you know, in the reeds so the ducks can't see them. Well, not only are they two different backgrounds, but, but the Putnells and Petey are two different body types, all right? The Putnells are all kind of built like pit bulls. The tallest one's like this tall, right? But you wouldn't tell them that because they'll bite your arm off. I mean, they're all kind of little and muscular. And so when they're going through the mud and the water, they're like water spiders. They're just kind of like, boo, boo, boo. you know, they can just kind of move around. Well, Petey, uh, did you wear an orange shirt on purpose? Petey is like a human carrot, all right? <laughs> kind of big up top, and then it all goes down to a point, all right? Sort of like a big bird, you know, human big bird. There's a lot up here, and then it goes, bing, right out the bottom. All right, so... So as, as, as the human carrot is like making his way through the mud, you know, the Putnells are kind of scooting around on the top. 
And they're trying to drag the John boat up into their, their spot in the marsh. Well, every step he takes, he goes a little deeper and a little deeper. All right? And what first is just a little uncomfortable begins to get a little bit scary. And then, you know, it's like drag your foot out. Well, eventually, he says, it, it, the mud is starting to get so high that he can't get his feet out of the mud. And then, then he realizes he's stuck. And he's a little embarrassed. I mean, he's thinking, I have run multi-million dollar corporations and I am stuck in the mud. And then, and then as he begins to try to work himself out of it, again, he's like, a, he's like a human railroad spike. Remember that? Okay. And so the harder he works, the deeper and deeper and deeper he goes till he gets to the point where he is stuck, stuck. And then he's telling me about it and he goes, and what do you do when you're stuck up to here in mud? Because you put your hands down to try to push up, but it's just mud. So it goes, right? So now you're just stuck and dirty. That's all. And so you get to the, he gets to the place where the, where the embarrassment sort of turns into panic. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but every year people die duck hunting because they get stuck in the mud and then the tide comes in and they can't get out. So... Petey knows about that, so Petey has to humble himself and say, Hey, Patnols, a little help over here. So the little clan of, you know, pit bull water spider people, they kind of come over here and <laughs> boop and pop Petey out of the mud. And listen, and it's a picture of salvation. You're not going to believe this, but Isaiah 69, 14 says this, Deliver me from sinking into the mud. It's Petey's new life verse, okay? So, so, you know what your problem is and my problem is, is that we're stuck in the mud. I got bad news, I got worse news. The bad news is that every single one of us by nature have been stuck in the mud. And if you think you can get you out of the mud that you got you into, you're too dumb to talk to. That's why the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know that's dumb, right? Try to pick yourself up later today. It's impossible that's why when you walk into the bookstore and the largest section in the entire bookstore is the self-help section, it's an exercise in futility. You can't get you out of the mud. It requires someone unstuck to come by and pull you up out of the mud. And the worst news is, the bad news is we've all been stuck in the mud. The worst news is, and the tide's coming in. That's what Peter is saying to Cornelius. Look, man, I'm just, I'm just revealing to you that you are stuck in the mud. And it takes somebody outside of the mud, unstuck from the mud, to come and unstick you. And the only one that's not stuck in the mud, his name is Jesus. And so for the rest of this time, what he is going to do is he's just going to lay out the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 36. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So in other words, the message of the gospel is not, God is good, you are bad, try harder. And if you get good enough, then maybe God will let you in. Because some of you have tried that, and it is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. You will just get on this, on this hamster wheel of trying harder and trying harder and trying harder, and you'll just fail and fail and fail. Or you might get some things right and then be puffed up with pride which is really the ultimate failure. And so what he's saying is, um, when you hear that you're a wretched, black-hearted sinner stuck in the mud and the tide's coming in, but what you've got to do is call out for help, it should actually bring peace. It should actually bring relief. So you mean it's not up to me to try harder? Right. 
So you mean uh, there's nothing that I've ever done or will do that's bigger than the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross? That's right. You mean that he saves me, I don't save me? That's absolutely right. That's why, that's why Ephesians says it's by grace that you have been saved. And every time we start talking about grace around here, there's somebody that comes and says, Pastor, you know what? If you keep preaching all that grace stuff, people are going to believe that they can do whatever they want and still go to heaven. So, so I will say this, that God's grace doesn't give us a license to do whatever we want to sin, that God's grace gives us a license to walk in obedience with him. If you think Jesus came to suffer and die on the cross so that you could still sleep with your girlfriend or cheat on your test or cheat on your taxes or be a liar or disrespect your parents, then, then you don't understand God's grace. And, and, if that's what, and if you're trying to use the cross as an excuse to do what you want, then you've got a lordship issue. But what you need to understand is that it's by grace that we've been saved and set free so that we could walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when we do the right thing, not to try to earn God's love, but because we look back at the cross and understand he loved me so much that I want to I live in a manner that honors him, then that's what Paul means when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then our righteous deeds are not scubulon or, or polluted garments. Our righteous deeds are worship unto him. And that's what he has called us to walk in. And so, verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus lived a perfect life. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we find out that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we could become his righteousness. Theologians call this double imputation, that when you surrender your life to Christ, you get Christ's life, and he gets your sin. So Christ had to live a perfect life that we could not live, so that we could be imputed with his righteousness. And then upon the cross, he endured the full wrath of God, and so he was imputed with our sinfulness. It would be like if your bank account was bankrupt and you met a bazillionaire and by their grace they said, we're changing bank accounts and it just changed. That's what happens at salvation. That even though you were bankrupt and didn't do anything to deserve it, you get the bank account of the son of the most high God. That's what, that's what happens at salvation. And so he lives this perfect life and then they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when Jesus Christ died a sinner's death on the cross, he did it as our substitutionary atonement. The theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. That first word just means that there's a penalty. Because God is just, he will judge all sin. But because he is rich in mercy, not only is he a just judge, but he is also the justifier. In other words, that your sin and my sin is so despicable that someone had to die for it. And yet, God loves us so much that he is willing to be that someone. And so, when you surrender your life to the lordship of Christ, then you accept 
the payment for your sin that you yourself could not pay. And then, not only was Christ crucified for our sin, but the Bible says that he was resurrected from the grave. Because it wasn't enough that he would just die on the cross. Lots of people died on the cross. But when God raised him from the dead, not only did he forgive us of our sin by what Christ did on the cross, but by resurrecting him from the grave, he claims victory over sin and death and secures our future with him forever and ever. Amen. That's why Jesus calls this eternal life. That, that Christians, that people that surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ, that we live forever with Christ, and he purchased that by being resurrected from the, from the grave. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. And so, early on, Peter says to Cornelius, all right, so anybody who fears God and does what's right, they're acceptable to God. Cornelius gets it. Oh, well, that's none of us. And so the, the, the gospel is right here that everyone, that's important, everyone, there's not, a pers- pers- there's not a person in this room that is disqualified, nor is there a person in this room that just sort of inherited their salvation. That everyone who believes, that Greek word there is pistuo. It means to believe, trust, and commit your whole life into. You know, there's a difference between believing in something and believing that something, right? The best example I can think of without going political is, you know, I believe that they play football in Gainesville every year, right? I believe that that happens. But I do not believe in what's happening there. Like, we don't even drink Gatorade at my house. We drink Powerade, you know what I mean? So, do you see the difference? Because the Bible says that even the demons believe and shudder. So just believing that there's a God doesn't mean you're a Christian. But whoever, pastuo, the way we say it around here is everyone who would surrender, believes in him, receives forgiveness. That God wants to offer you the gift of forgiveness. And you know what you do to earn a gift? Nothing. Because if you earn it, it now becomes a wage And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's what you've earned. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when you get a paycheck, how do you respond every two weeks? When you get your paycheck, are you like, oh my gosh, they did it again. Who can I thank? No. If you don't get one, you're like, hey, what's wrong with you people? I work hard for this money, okay? I earned that. Well, in God's economy, we earned death by our sin. But the gift of God The gift that he has awaiting you is not condemnation. It's not condemnation. But it's adoption into his family. It's the forgiveness of sin. And all you have to do with a gift is to receive it. To receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And I believe that the empirical evidence that God has chosen you for salvation is the fact that you would be here this morning to hear the explicit gospel. And that it's not by any good thing that you can do. My favorite picture of salvation in the scriptures is in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says, he's talking about spiritual warfare, and he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have you seen one of those breastplates, one of those Romans breastplates? I don't know who modeled that thing, but that dude works out, okay? Have you seen it? It's like perfect pecs and abs. Have you seen those? I mean, that dude ain't eating carbs for dinner. All right, he's on the P90X or the Atlantic Beach Performance Program. or He's doing something. 
And so the picture of justification or your salvation is to put on the righteousness of Christ, that you put his perfect life over your life, and his life covers yours. So when God the judge looks at you, he sees the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I know on the underneath side of the breastplate, it's all kind of gooey and flabby and jiggles a little bit, right? The keg is there, but that's not what God sees. God sees the the breastplate of righteousness, the six-pack going on, going nice abs. And you're like, they're not even mine, they're Jesus's. That's how this thing works. And that, and that's called justification, justified never sinned before. And then the longer you wear that thing, what begins to happen, because the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of you, is that the flab and the goo on your side of the deal begins to kind of take the shape of the breastplate of righteousness. Some of you have begun to experience that. You've been a Christian for a little while, and, and you go back and visit your parents, and the things that they used to say to you that get on your nerves, they still get on your nerves, except instead of responding, uh, instead of responding with disrespect, you just kind of take it and say something respectful, and you, then you're going, what the heck just happened? That's the Holy Spirit sanctifying you. Or moms, there's some things that your kids do before school, and it drives you crazy, and then one day, instead of biting their head off, you open your mouth, and patients fall out, and you're like, huh, what was that? It was a fruit of the Spirit. It's the sanctifying process that, that the longer you walk with him, the more he makes you like him. And then when we're glorified in heaven, they become your abs. And you're like, sweet, all right? And you are glorified with him. And that's what the gospel is for you. And so he says to Cornelius, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. The bottom line is this, that God's forgiveness cannot be earned. You cannot earn something that has been purchased for you. It cannot be inherited just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian, right? I've said this a million times. Sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than putting your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. That's not how this thing works. It's about a personal relationship with him. Nor can it be self-declared. The problem with works-based righteousness is if you think you're good enough, then you get in. Well, you sinned against God. You don't get to be the one that determines when you're forgiven. If you sin against me, I get to give you forgiveness when I choose. And so God is the one who is always uh, the victim of sin. And he is the one offering you forgiveness. That it must be received. So the question is, have you received God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ? Not do you go to church, not are you a bad person trying to be better, not are you trying to learn more about God, but have you received forgiveness? Because I've got good news, bad news, and worse news. The bad news is you're stuck in the mud. The, the worst news is the tide is coming in. The good news is that God demonstrates his love for you in this, that even while you're stuck in the mud, that all you do is say, Lord, save me. Here I am. I want to surrender my life to you. And he does not come over and condemn you. He does not come over. Because here's the message you've heard at church before. You think God's going to show up and be like, you idiot, why are you in the mud? Don't get in the mud again. I told you don't. Look, if you built like a carrot, you have to walk up there. You can't walk down here, okay? And that's, not, that's condemnation. That is not from the Father. You'll get conviction and forgiveness. You get adopted into the family of God. And so... Here's what it means to put your faith and hope and trust in Christ. There's no magic prayer. There's no repeat after me that saves you. There's no just because you raise your hand makes you a Christian. Becoming a Christian means that you admit that you're a sinner. You admit, I, all right, I'm stuck in the mud. 
Whether, whether it's in my rebellion or my religiosity, I am stuck in the mud and I cannot get me out. That's the A. Secondly, you believe in the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross as the substitutionary atoning payment for your sin. That you believe in, trust in, surrender to Jesus. And then you confess him as Lord of your life. You remove you from the throne of your life. And Christ takes his rightful seat in the throne of your heart. This morning I want to give you the opportunity to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Would you please bow your head with me? Would you just take a second just to kind of clear your thoughts and focus on a heavenly Father that loves you enough to send His Son to die for you. And if you think God is saving you in this moment, if He is what theologians call regenerating your heart, if He has softened your heart to the gospel this day, and you admit that you're stuck and you believe in Jesus and you are ready to confess him as Lord and raise your hand right where you are and say, God, here I am stuck in the mud. I know the tide's coming in and I know you're the only one that saves. You're the only one that can save me. And with your hand in the air, you just pray a simple prayer. You just admit your sinfulness. You believe on Jesus and you confess him as Lord and Savior. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much for the gospel. God, the gospel above that tells us that, that we were created good, but then there was a fall that affected us all. God, that we can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and that one day all things will be made new. And God, we also, we, we praise you for the gospel on the ground. That Lord, you reach down, regenerate our hearts and draw us unto yourself. God, that we can be justified by the blood of the cross. But God, we're also sanctified by the blood of the cross and glorified by the blood of the cross. And God, I thank you and I praise you for the men and women who have come to you this day. Holy Spirit, by your power, would you also work in the Christians in this room, God, the disciples in this room, that, that we would not think that, that the cross and the gospel is like the beginning steps of our faith. But God, it is, it is the, the foundation of our faith. And God, may we cling to the gospel. That, that the, but by receiving forgiveness, God, when we do sin, we can run to you and not away from you. God, we thank you and we praise you that you demonstrated your love for us. That while we were stuck in the mud, God, you came and saved us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand up? Every week we respond to the gospel. It's what we do. God initiates and we respond. And so we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to all the different places in the room. We respond by, by coming and praying at the altar. And then we also respond by singing the gospel together. So if you would please respond with us.